Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to Central, where we seek transformation through the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's my privilege to welcome you to church here today. Well, if you've been with us as we've marched our way through the Psalms of Ascent, we've finally made it. We made it to Jerusalem for Holy Week as we've been singing the Psalms of Ascent with God's people as we've traveled to Passover this morning. We are at the gates of Jerusalem alongside the Lord Jesus. Today is called Palm Sunday. It's also called the Triumphal Entry, and it begins the final week of Jesus' earthly life, and we will walk through this story through all of our services this Holy Week. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem today, not on foot like most other pilgrims, but he arrived on a donkey. And the transportation points to something. It communicates something, as it does with all kinds of different leaders. One pastor amused what's communicated by how different leaders travel around the world. The U.S. president travels on Air Force One and Marine One and with an armored car called the Beast. Demonstrations of power and security are communicated by how our president travels, right? Vladimir Putin travels sometimes shirtless on the back of a horse. And I'm not sure what that's intended to communicate, but something. North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un travels in a bulletproof train with wine and cheese stocked. It's barreling along at the top speed of 37 miles per hour. <laughs> Communicate something. Even in ancient world, especially those influenced by Rome, the way leaders entered cities communicated something following in the tradition of triumphal entry. It was the way kings entered cities or conquering generals came into towns that celebrated their strength, it celebrated their majesty, it celebrated them as they conquered a community. What might it mean that Jesus entered into Jerusalem in the spirit, in the tradition of triumphal entry in the most important week of his earthly life? Arguably the pivotal week of the entirety of human history. Not atop a beast of power or a war horse, not even being pulled by a chariot as every other triumphal entry known to man had experienced. But Jesus came on the back of a donkey, a humble beast, a symbol in those days of a servant of peace. As Isaiah called him, the Prince of Peace entered Jerusalem on a mission of peace because there was hostility between God and man. God took on flesh and entered Jerusalem not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, for a crowd of sinners there and sinners here, like you and me. But if in our minds, King Jesus belongs in something more like an Air Force One, if Jesus belongs in something more like an armored beast, rather than atop a beast of burden, if he belongs in something more like a beast rather than atop a donkey of peace, then we've got the wrong idea about Jesus. He didn't ride into Jerusalem to grasp for authority, not to conquer through military might and power. Jesus came to conquer through sacrifice. King Jesus came to claim his crown by giving up his life on the cross for his people to make us, as we shall see, the blind, the lame, the outcast, the sinner, maybe even the self-righteously good people, the overlooked, the rebellious, all kinds of sinners, all kinds of people like us. 
He came to make us into his very own dearly loved people. A king on a donkey claimed a people that only a savior could want. That's the point of Palm Sunday. A king on a donkey claimed a people that only a savior could want. Let's pray and ask the Lord to open our eyes to this text. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to behold Jesus, the real and true and risen Jesus here as he's with us even now. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went forth before him, and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. The Lord teaches the humble his way. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. A king on a donkey claimed a people only a savior could want. Let's think about that for a minute. A king on a donkey. In Jerusalem, the crowd came out to greet Jesus and joined in this great celebration and they spread their cloaks on the road. It says, that's a little bit like if we rolled out the red carpet. The king was coming. 
And so they spread their cloaks on the road and put palm branches on the ground and they joined their voices together shouting, Hosanna, son of David, in verse 9. They were shouting and celebrating about the best king that Israel had ever had, David. And here now is the son of David, the son of the best king, and he's come finally to destroy the enemies of God, they thought. He's come to restore the kingdom of Israel. He's come to restore Jerusalem as the true capital. And they waved palm branches as symbols of victory. The king finally to restore the land to God's people. He's here. Maybe in the backs of their minds they had that idea of the triumphal entry in their mind. Maybe this king is is a military king like David was a military king. Maybe he's a great general like David was a great general. Maybe our time has finally come. Maybe our hurts are going to be put behind us. Maybe the pain, maybe the the oppression of these Romans is finally going to be over. They, They wave palm branches. The Jews began to wave palm branches in the years of the Maccabees when maybe 150, 175 years before The Maccabees won some great wars and kicked foreign invaders out of their land. They waved the palm branches as their signs of victory then, and they were waving them now as signs of, in the face of this oppressive Rome, our time has come. Our king is here. The time for all that evil is done. This king is here to make us free. Can you feel the expectation in them? Maybe it feels... A little bit like how you and I might feel today when we, when we think about what happened in Nashville last week. The time for all that evil is over, Lord. Lord, we know how that, how that terror feels. We, Central and Covenant Church in Nashville are connected. There are people in our church who have grandchildren in that school I have friends on that staff. Other pastors have friends on that staff. Chad is a friend of mine. We know people there. We know the pain and we, we know the hurt. And maybe, just maybe somewhere deep within, we say enough, Jesus. Time's done. It's time to be done with all of that. When are you finally going to be here? Hosanna, son of David. When are you finally going to be here and be done with all of that? Can any of you identify with how the people of God might have felt with the boot of Rome on their neck? How we might feel? It's time for the end of all of that evil. Lord, enough. But this wasn't going to be a triumphal entry like any of them had ever experienced before. He didn't meet their expectations. This king didn't come on a war horse. He wasn't on this powerful stallion. He didn't even arrive in a chariot, but he arrived on a donkey, verse 7 says. Not even a donkey, it says on a colt. He was on a baby donkey. Not even a baby donkey. He was arrived on a borrowed baby donkey. Matthew was very purposeful to point that out. It wasn't even his. He comes into Jerusalem on this borrowed colt, this borrowed baby donkey, in answer to the prophecy that's quoted in in, in verse 5 from Zechariah 9. This is a beast of burden. This king comes into his city of triumph as a humble king. That's not how it's supposed to be. That's not how the story's supposed to go. This is a different kind of king. He he does the work of a king 
in ways that he's not supposed to behave. Kings protect, kings defend, kings stand in strength, kings destroy the enemies of their people. But this king protects and defends and stands in strength by making himself a servant. This king protects by giving his life in exchange for his people. That's not the way the story's supposed to go. Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day the way he rides into my life and yours. He, he knew that the price of peace that he came to bring would be offering his own life on a cross, a humiliating cross. Kings don't do that on purpose. He knew that defeating the evil that we are sick of that they were sick of. The evil that threatens his people would mean that he would bear the full weight of all that evil on himself. He knew that being hailed as the king would mean that within days he would be crowned with a crown of thorns. Think about that, a crown of thorns. Thorns came in the book of Genesis because of the fall of this earth and under the curse of God. Remember that when we, we introduced sin into the world and the earth was cursed and fallen, remember what God cursed the earth with? Thorns. And so the thorns here are a sign of the curse. Jesus has a crown of the curse. It's put on his head and he's nailed to a cross under the curse of God for sinners, for you and for me, under the judgment of God, for all of this evil that we are sick of in this world. Jesus, the king, comes to place himself under that curse. He rode into Jerusalem the same way that he rides into my heart and yours as a servant offering his life in exchange for ours. Were his people given peace because of what he did on the cross and he calls us to follow after his steps as servants too. But maybe, if you're anything like me, we want more of the victor's crown. I'm holding out for the power and the glory. Maybe we want the moment in which we triumph when I'm wanting my cause to triumph. I'm wanting our people to triumph. I'm waiting for the moment when we finally win. That's probably how the people in Jerusalem felt. That's how we feel sometimes. We wave our banners. Lord, I'm ready for all the riffraff to be gone. I'm ready for it all to be over. And maybe we find ourselves sometimes even disappointed by having the call to adopt a posture of peace and become a people of sacrifice because we're ready for the victory, right? But this king keeps calling us back into that humble place of servants while we wait for his return. That's the hard place of right now. We are in between Jesus' first coming in humility and his second coming in glory. Now, make no mistake, when Jesus returns, he's going to right every wrong, when Jesus comes back in glory, he's going to heal every wound. He's going to deal with every injustice. He's going to remove every act of evil. He's going to make all the sad things come untrue. Every perpetration of evil will be dealt with. It will be judged. It will all be wiped away. It will all be handled by the king of glory in holiness on the last day. Evil will have its day. But right now, 
While we wait for that day, the Lord Jesus calls us to be a people of love and service. He even tells us to pray for our enemies. He calls us to bless those who persecute us. He calls us to step into the place of taking up our cross and following him, walking the footsteps that he walked. He calls us to be willing to die to ourselves. That's, that's a hard road to walk. We can't walk that road by ourselves. We need him. We need his spirit to, to make us able to walk that road that Jesus, our king who conquered through humility and sacrifice, he's got to be able to strengthen us to walk that kind of road. Where is he calling you today? Where might Jesus be calling you to mount up as on a beast of burden? Calling you to a life of sacrifice and love, even serving an enemy. When I say that, whose name comes to mind? Whose name comes, maybe it's a name in your own family. Who's he calling you to love? You might even be an enemy in your own family. In your workplace? Someone across the political divide? Maybe it's a neighbor. I'm not sure who it is, but I promise that a name popped into every single person's mind. Who might he be calling you today to take up your cross and follow him in love and service and sacrifice so that that person might see the love of a king embodied in the way that you love them. Who might you love, even if it costs you? King on a donkey <laughs> claims the people that only a savior would want. King on a donkey claimed you. King on a donkey claimed me. The king on our donkey has a lot of work to do in this world because it's really broken. We need him. But he also, he claims a people that only a savior could want. Look at verse 12 where Jesus entered into the temple where the religious leaders were playing a game that you might find on the schoolyard where they're playing the you're in, you're out game. You ever see that game? If you can contribute to the team, you're in. If you're not quite good enough, then you're, you're out. I want you on somebody else's team. In verses 12 to 15, there were no one who the religious leaders only wanted on their team and everybody was out. There were blind and lame and religiously unclean people that they thought. There were children, they were there. There was nobody that they counted who could do anything for God. The religious leaders in those days thought that, that if you were upright, if you uh, deserved the presence of God, if you had it together, then your life wouldn't have blemishes in it. They're, the evidence of sin and wrongdoing and blemishes in your life all fit you in the same pot, that there's something wrong and you don't deserve to be in the very presence of God in the temple. All the religious leaders look at who's there and they say, you, all of you are out. None of you can do anything meaningful for God. Maybe sometimes we think about other people who have wounds that way. We might think about it this way. Only the high performers for God need apply. Highly gifted, upwardly mobile. You guys are the, you are the really, really gifted people. You're the ones that are really going to make God's kingdom go. But the Lord so often turns our expectations upside down. He uses the weak. 
He uses the poor, he uses the unexpected to do beautiful things. The leaders asked Jesus, don't you hear all these kids shouting blasphemy, son of David? Don't you care about that? Jesus in verse 16, he absolutely cared. He answered, yes, I do. And he quoted back to them from Psalm 8, out of the mouth of infants and babies, you have prepared praise. What a brilliant answer. He answered them, what can infants and babies offer God? What upstanding credentials do they have to dwell in the presence of God? What mighty and magnificent deeds for God can these babies do? The answer is absolutely nothing. What high performance for God can these babies offer him? Nothing. The only thing they have is their praise from their cries. That's it. God has ordained that he would be praised through the cries of these babies. Their dependence, their neediness is what they bring to him. That's what they have for him. Their neediness actually draws the Savior toward him. See, by definition, that's what a Savior does. A Savior saves. That's what he does. A Savior saves needy people. That's what he does. And it's, in fact, the neediness of people that draws the Savior toward them. Think about it this way. What does a fireman do? By definition, a fireman runs toward the fire. A fireman run towards the fire to put out a blaze to rescue people in harm's way. A savior, by definition, runs toward those people who need saving. That's what Jesus has come to do. He's not come to, to gather together a bunch of upwardly mobile people who don't need saving, don't think that they need saving. He's drawn toward the needy. And these babies, who all they can offer are their cries, they're perfect candidates of course I'm wanting them because they're being honest about their need. How about you, religious leaders? How about us here today? A savior runs toward those who need saving and he, he receives our need and he's blessed by our communication of how deeply we need him. And he adds us and draws us all together, all of us misfits into a beautiful family called by his name. I heard a pastor named Matt Chandler one time, I don't know him, but I heard him tell a story about when he was a college freshman, he went to a, a, a ministry event and he invited a woman to go along with him. He had been sharing the gospel with this non-Christian woman and uh, he invited her to this, uh, this event and the pastor at that, that night started out his talk by saying, tonight we're gonna talk about sex. And Matt said he cringed because the woman that he invited, uh, that he'd been sharing the gospel with, was living a really sexually promiscuous life. And he thought, this is going to go really bad. This is not what I planned at all. This is going to go terrible. And so um, at the beginning of the talk, the pastor kind of leaned down on the front row. He had a rose, and he handed it to the person on the front row and said, just I want you guys to notice that sweet smell of this rose and how soft the petals are. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get it later. Just, just pass it around. And then he started his talk. And this talk uh, focused on... The, the damage of sexual sin in people's life. And all the while, as Matt would kind of glance over at this young woman next to him, and he would see her just sinking further in her seat, deeper into shame. Now, I, I get where this teaching pastor was going. I mean, in an increasingly sexually permissive culture, I mean, 
we need to be really clear about what God, our creator, and the designer of sex has to say about it. I mean, one of the favorite lies of our culture is that sex really doesn't mean anything. I mean, it's, it's just casual. It's really, it's no big deal. But the truth is that sex never really is just sex. Sex, as God designed it, inherently unites a man and a woman, it, it body and soul, just as God intended it to do. It's, it's about a, a covenant, it's a, it's a bond, it's a pledge it, in, in marriage, it joins people together. And so, and the union is so deep that it's, it's never really just casual sex. It, it does damage to people who aren't bound together. Even, even just watching it on a screen in pornography, it, it does damage to people. So I kind of get where the, the pastor was trying to go in, in his talk, but, but let's just say, as Matt described it, the guy's talk was all truth and no grace. And so he came to the end and uh, he asked for his rose back. And so some poor college student walked the rose up and gave it to the guy. And, and you know, by the end of all the people who had touched it, I mean, it, it was bent over and broken and, you know, some of the petals had fallen off and they were just miscolored. And I mean, it was, it was shabby. I mean, it had lost its beauty. It, was, it wasn't the same rose that he had passed out at the beginning. And the pastor, this was kind of his, his crowning moment of his talk. And he said, he held it up, all bent over. Who would want this? Who would want this rose? I mean, who would want, oh, with all this damage, who would want a rose like this? And the implication was, with all this damage that sexual sin does, who's going to want you? If you engage in all that kind of promiscuous behavior, nobody's going to want you. And Matt said he got so angry. It was all he could do not to stand up and just shout, Jesus wants the rose. That's the whole point of the Christian faith. He wanted to look over to this young woman and say, don't listen. Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants you. That's why he went to Jerusalem. That's why, that's why he came to, a, to, to Palm Sunday. He wants battered, bruised sinners. He wants people whose lives have been completely wrecked by sexual sin. He wants people who are thieves and liars and murderers and abusers and gossips. He wants people whose lives are wrecked with addiction. Jesus wants you. That's why he went to the cross. Of people who are so messed up. And seeing, I mean, when, when people clearly and honestly have to admit that if it comes to choosing out the people who are righteous, we'd be left out of that conversation. We'd not be wanted either if people looked at our lives. That's us. And Jesus wants you. He wants to make you and me part of his, his beloved family. He, he takes people like us whose lives are, are misshapen, who are busted up, who We've done all kinds of damage to ourselves because of our sin and he makes us beautiful because of his love. That's what Jesus has come to do. The king on a donkey claims the people that only a savior could want because that's what saviors do. He comes to people who are in need. And maybe you're here this morning and you wonder if you fit here. Maybe you wonder, do I have a place? I mean, am I wanted at a place like Central? I mean, you look around this congregation, you see a lot of buttoned up people. People look like we have it all together, but and you think, do I fit? Jesus wants you. And we do too. 
Maybe it's intimidating. Maybe religious people sometimes have implied to you that for some reason in your life, nobody wants you. Jesus does. And we do too. King Jesus loves people like us and sometimes we don't love other people like we have been loved by Jesus. But we really want you here. And we're glad that you were here. Like that old hymn, Come Ye Sinner, says, all the fitness God requires is to feel your need of him. Jesus wants you. That's why he came. Now, there's some of us who may not identify with the obviously sinful. Maybe we're more like the religious leaders here. Maybe we're more on the, the rules enforcement side of the equation. Like, I have kept the law. I mean, I'm, I'm really not that bad. I mean, I haven't really killed anybody. I've kept the rules, at least the really important ones. I've kept them all. But you see, the reality is that Sometimes we're the last ones to see our own sins. At least we're the last ones to be willing to admit our own sins, but the truth is the people around you can see them. And even the deeper truth is Jesus can see them. He sees into our hearts things that we don't want other people to see. Jesus sees all of it and he wants you. He sees all of it and he Rather than being repelled from you, he's drawn toward you because the king on a donkey claims a people that only a savior wants. The good news of this text is that the savior wants the really wicked kind of people and he wants the self-righteously wicked kind of people. And those are the only two kinds of people that there are. Which kind are you? Because the savior wants you. He's come for you. Will you receive his love afresh today? That's why he entered Jerusalem atop that donkey. Because he wants you in his family. Let's pray. Father, we sometimes are just flooded and overwhelmed that you would love a people like us. When we take a moment and see ourselves the way that we really are, and realize that you took all of our shame on the cross, you took all of our sin. You've seen all of the things that we desperately try to hide so that nobody sees it. And you want us. You chose to go to the cross so that we could be your beloved children forever. So Lord, we bow the knee to you today and ask that you would not only receive us as your children, but you would revive our hearts and your love. There may be people here who've never received your love. May you convert them and make them alive that they would trust you for the first time today. Save them. But there are more of us here this morning, Father, whose hearts have grown cold to this old message. And I ask that you would revive us again. That you would help us to be mesmerized by how deeply you love us, how completely you know us. 
infect us with the truth of your love and make us servants that we would be willing to go out and serve and love even our enemies because at one time we were your enemy and you loved us. Make us a church of that kind of people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.